So we're in a series um, looking at world religions in seven sentences. And um, as, as we've kind of been framing it, what we're doing is saying, if each one of these world religions had sort of a, um, a motto, <laughs> something at, at, you know, whatever is at the core of their faith, how could it be expressed in one sentence? And then from there, kind of use it as a window to get understanding into that particular religion or into that worldview. And so the first um, couple of weeks, we spent our time um, looking at some uh, biblical explanations for religions. Why are there many religions if there's only one creator God? What is the Bible's explanation for that? And then how are, how are we to understand what are, are there powers? Are there actual forces, actual supernatural beings behind the religions, behind philosophies and ideas? And we saw, yep, according to the Bible, there is. <laughs> and so that's why the Apostle Paul, when he says, uh, we don't engage or fight with flesh and blood, he's like, people are not the enemy but rather with principalities, powers. And he said, and we, we have supernatural uh, weapons that defeats. And then he, thinks, he mentions things like philosophies, pretensions, ideas, arguments. So that's why we're looking at what are the ideas here? Because those are the things that, that we're trying to say, we want truth and not falsehood. So um, tonight we're looking, tonight's gonna be a little different probably than the first, two weeks and different than the rest of the weeks because we're looking at the one non-religion um, in this. This is a worldview. And, and so I'll kind of say a little bit about that. Um, the world, the word worldview, it, it, it comes to us from uh, Immanuel Kant, the German philosopher, and he took uh, Welt, which means is world in German, and Anschang and put them together, Weltanschang, is a world outlook. And so this has sort of made its way into popular, even English um, terminology when we talk about someone's worldview, their, their outlook on life. And your and my worldview, it is a matrix of all the assumptions and beliefs and values and all that stuff that you hold, consciously or unconsciously. All those ideas... And your worldview helps you navigate life. Your worldview is, is what causes you to make decisions, why you should value this and not that. It's, think of it like a lens. It's a lens of how you see the world. How many of you know people who are very similar to you, but you go, man, they see the world really differently than I do. Maybe people in your own house, and you're like, they see the world very differently than I do. We all have lenses through which we see the world, and that's your world view. And we talk about this idea of our goal is I want to have a biblical worldview. I want my worldview to be informed by the worldview of scriptures. So here's what I want to do tonight. I wanted to bring up two different approaches to thinking about a worldview or a religion, two different kind of angles to come at it to get an understanding. And then, um, and then I want to uh, also read to you a, um, a parable by a guy who gives us this one sentence of this particular worldview of atheisms. So one approach that you can take if you wanna understand like, okay, what is this person's worldview? Is you ask four questions. If you wanna write these down, we will be mentioned, talking about these things. We'll be kind of approaching worldview through these four kind of buckets. Origin, meaning, Morality, destiny. Origin, meaning, morality, and destiny are four buckets that every worldview has to address in some way. Origin, where did everything come from? Um, is there anything behind this world? Um, what's the origin story of the universe? <laughs> We talked earlier about origin stories. I love, you know, movie origin stories like Batman. How did, how did Bruce Wayne become Batman? Like, I want to know the origin story. What's the origin story for all of this? 
Is there anything behind it? Or is this all there is? Is there, as we talked about, is there just a physical realm or is there an unseen realm, origin, uh, meaning? What's the purpose of life? What is my purpose of life in that broader story of the purpose of life? Morality, is there right and wrong? If so, um, how can it be known? Is it something sort of just like subjectively, we all kind of come up with our own right and wrong? Is there an objective that is to say true regardless of what anyone thinks about it? Uh, moral nature to the world? And then destiny, what happens after we die? Is it just we're worm food? That's done. Is there more? Do we do it again? Is it reincarnation? <laughs> Your worldview is going to answer these four buckets, origin, meaning, morality, and destiny. So it can be helpful to have these as we think through these seven religions, but let me give you another approach. If it's not the four buckets approach, it's the three big questions in life. Three big questions in life is, what is the religious ultimate What is the religious ultimate? Something has to be uh, in that, you know, something needs to hold that place. What is the religious ultimate? And the other two questions are human problem, human solution. What's wrong? Most worldviews have an account for uh, things aren't quite right. There's a human problem. And then, okay, so what's the fix? So those three big questions, and that's what I want to do tonight, is we'll, we'll take both of those approaches at different times. Um, two quick caveats. Um, we're talking about atheism tonight. There's not just one kind of atheist, <laughs> which is the ch- There's not just one kind of Hindu. There's not just one kind of Buddhist. There's not just one kind of whatever, which makes it kind of a challenge. But we, we do want to at least have an idea of like, okay, what solar system are you in? Like, I want to get a radar fix on this particular worldviews. But the best way to um, know about someone's worldview is to just ask them questions. I've been surprised how many times when I've met, say someone's a Hindu, and I assume, okay, this is what you believe ultimate reality is. It's Brahma, and we'll get to Hinduism one week, and oh no, we've got a lot of gods, and we pray to them, and... um, You know, there's atheistic Buddhists, and and then there are other ones who don't hold that. So the best way to do it is to not assume, oh, you're a Buddhist, I know what you believe. But you kind of want to know where where in the universe are you, but just to ask questions, to to be curious, to know what they believe. And that's, that's, I guess, an encouragement in this series is I, I want to be someone who's becoming curious of the people who I'm talking to without always being argumentative. <laughs> you know what I mean by that? I can ask a question, and one of the, one of the statements that I made in an earlier week is, um, prefer clarity over agreement. You don't have to have agreement with the person you're talking to. Get clarity. Ask, I wanna understand what it is you believe, so I'm gonna ask a lot of, I'm gonna be curious, and I'm gonna ask questions about that so I have understanding. Um, And I'm not saying that it's ever wrong to engage in an argument. I don't mean being argumentative. Let me me give you one verse, which is one of my favorite ones. This will be up on the screen here. It's from Proverbs chapter 26, verse 3. Proverbs chapter 26, verse 3. Now, this is interesting. Verse 4 And verse 5, look at what they say. Verse 4 says, Answer not a fool according to his folly, lest you be like him yourself. Verse 5, Answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own eyes. So here's the question, which one is it? (laughs) The point is, the wise person knows when to employ verse 4, and when to employ verse five. You have enough wisdom under your belt that you know in a a given situation, when should I do this or when should I do that? When should I 
engage in this conversation, once you just hold my tongue. It just that's fascinating. Tell me more. Um, because proverbs are not something that are just these truisms that that um, you know you just employ. That's that's what the uh, author says a little uh, later down. He says, like a lame man's legs, which hangs useless, is a proverb in the mouth of fools. See, if you just spout off a proverb and it's not the appropriate time, it's pointless. You're still the fool, is the point. So the book of Proverbs is encouraging us to become the wise person who knows when to employ verse four, who knows when to employ verse five, and you'll mess up a lot along the way, and then that's when you ask for forgiveness, right? But this is our, this is our goal this is our point here. So week three, like I said, this week's going to be a little bit different because um, in the other weeks, we will probably have a little bit more comparison of what is a, what is a biblical um, understanding of these religious claims that are being made. But this week, we're looking at atheism. atheism. And there are different synonyms that uh, can be used. Yeah, there's nuance between them, but at the end of the day, we're typically speaking of the same thing. We say things like secularism, materialism, uh, naturalism, or secular humanism. We're all kind of, there are different flavors to some of those, but typically at the core, it's still disagreement that there's the positive affirmation that God does not exist. So the first sentence that we're looking at in our seven God is dead. That's our first sentence. This is the window into atheism. God is dead. And I bring that up because that comes to us from an 18th century German atheist philosopher, Friedrich Nietzsche. And Nietzsche proclaimed the death of God. Now, let me explain what I mean by that. He's not, he, he, he makes the claim God is dead he doesn't mean it like he used to be alive and now he's dead. He's, t- he's saying the concept, the placeholder of that ultimate you know, religious, uh, what's the ultimate religious reality? That concept is we've done away with it. He didn't think God existed to begin with, but he's declaring the death of God conceptually. And he's telling his culture and his world and his words have rung down the years, this idea that there's no God. So come to grips with that and come to the conclusion of what that entails. And that's the biggest part. That's part that I actually really appreciate about Nietzsche is Nietzsche forces the atheist to be honest as much as possible. And he tries to do that. <clears throat> let, me, let me read for you just this little statement right here. This comes from um, Doug Groteis. Nietzsche is most known for a bold three-word statement and for a sad 12-year condition. The condition is insanity, which overtook him in 1884, thus ending his writing. After seeing a horse being beaten on the street, the great advocate of the hyper-masculine overman threw his arms around the beast and fell into insanity. His statement, God is dead, that was made in his right mind. Nietzsche is, is, a, is a fascinating guy. He, he writes a parable. I told you I want to tell you a parable. In his book, The Gay Science, he has a parable called The Madman. And it, it's, it's a bit long, but it needs to be read in total because of the dramatic nature of this. So let me read this parable for you. Have you not heard of that madman who lit a lantern in the bright morning hours, ran to the marketplace, and cried incessantly, I'm looking for God, I'm looking for God. As many of those who do not believe in God were standing around just then, he provoked much laughter. Why did he get lost, said one. Did he lose his way like a child, said another. Or is he hiding? Is he afraid of us? Has he gone on a voyage or immigrated? Thus, they yelled and laughed, but the madman jumped into their midst and pierced them with his glances. Whither is God? He cried, I shall tell you. We have killed him. 
you and I. All of us are his murderers. But how have we done this? How were we able to drink up the sea? Who gave us the sponge to wipe away the entire horizon? What did we do when we unchained this earth from its sun? That's a key concept there. Whither is it moving now? That is the earth. Whither are we moving now? Away from all suns? Are we not plunging continually backwards, sideward, forward in all directions? Is there any up or down left? Are we, are we not straying as through an infinite nothing? Do we not feel the breath of empty space? Has it not become colder? Is night not more and more night coming on all the while? Must not lanterns be lit in the morning? Do we not hear anything yet of the noise of the grave diggers who are burying God? We do, not, do we not smell anything yet of God's decomposition? God's decomposed too, you know, and God is dead. God remains dead, and we have killed him. How shall we, the murderers of all murderers, comfort ourselves? What was holiest and most powerful of all that the world has yet owned has bled to death under our knives. Who will wipe the blood from us? What water is there to clean ourselves? What festivals of atonement? What sacred game shall we have to invent? Is not the greatness of this deed too great for us? Must not we ourselves become gods simply to seem worthy of it? There has never been a greater deed, and whoever will be born after us for the sake of this deed will be part of a higher history than all history hitherto. Here the madman fell silent and looked again at his listeners, and they too were silent, and they stared at him in astonishment. At last he threw his lantern on the ground, and it broke and went out. I've come too early, he said. My time has not come. This tremendous event is still on its way, still wandering. It has not yet reached the ears of man. Lightning and thunder require time. The light of the stars requires time. Deeds require time even after they are done, before they can be seen and heard. This deed is still more distant from them than most distant stars, and yet they have done it themselves. It has been related further that on the same day, the madman entered diverse churches and there sang his Requiem Eternum Deo, let out and called to account he is said to have replied each time, what are these churches now if they are not the tombs and the sepulchers of God? Dramatic, isn't it? It's well written. It's one of those parables that you, you do like with all parables, just like the parables of Jesus. You think about it, you turn it around, you retell it, you think about what, what is he claiming in this story he gives no positive arguments for atheism, at least in this particular place. He assumes it, but he poetically and dramatically draws out, hey, guess what? You've gotten rid of God. There are, there are now social implications. There are now a personal implications of having a landscape devoid of God. His point is this. If God is dead, it means, one, well, there never was a God to begin with, to the belief in God's non-existence has dire and dramatic implications for culture, for politics, for history, all those things. And these historical implications will inevitably be worked out over time. That's his point of stars, you know, the light of stars require time to get to us. This, even the implications of what you have done getting rid of God, they haven't even gotten to you yet. They will eventually. And of course, Nietzsche died in 1900, right, right at the cusp um, of the 20th century, which was the bloodiest century in the history of the world. And Nietzsche was, in that sense, prophetic, someone almost on the outside, a prophet without God, <laughs> that is. But this parable can be read as both a prediction and a warning, as, as what will happen culturally um, when you jettison God. Um, and Nietzsche hated Christianity. So he's, he, he's not doing warning and saying, oh, be sure you want to. He's saying, we need to do this. He hated Christianity. He thought, he thought Christianity um, encouraged herd morality. Uh, you know, 
Bible says things like, blessed are the meek. And he said, ah, that's, that's just giving weak people an excuse to not become the overman, the, the ubermunch, as he called it. The one who's sort of, life is meaningless, there's no value, so I'm gonna go make my own. I'm gonna become, that's why he said, will we not have to become gods ourselves? Yes, in a sense you will. And he believed very few would do it. He said, it's only the courageous, of course, including him, who would have the ability to become this over man, to, to live in this stark world that doesn't have God and has lost all of these values. But again, this is where I think Nietzsche is useful. Um, and he's a good contender for us because he forces the atheists to be consistent with their views. And here's probably one of the biggest, I would say this is the biggest fallout. There's many, but every value, I'm talking like moral values, every value that required God as its root is uprooted. And again, what remains is this sort of godless landscape and there's no compass, no map. <laughs> there's nothing to guide you external to yourself. That's why he said the earth has been unchained from that sun. Is upward, downward, is there any upward and downward? He's saying the minute we unchain this thing, all moral truths are out the window and all you have left is the will to power. The will to power. This was the idea that Adolf Hitler, who was influenced by Nietzsche, said, yes, that's, it's the will to power. It's the strong over the weak. All we have is the will to power, and you have to seize it. And so Nietzsche demands that the murderers of God, those who have jettisoned the concept, accept the plight uh, of, of reality. And again, he asserted only a few brave men, and he only meant men, not, not women, would have the strength to do this. That's why he writes, uh, he has his character Zarathustra uh, puts these words in his mouth. Verily, men gave themselves all their good and evil. They did not take it, they did not find it, nor did it come to them as a voice from heaven only man placed values in things to preserve himself. He alone created a meaning for things, a human meaning. So when the world is emptied of God, um, history radically changes. Think about the things that do not exist if there's no God. There's no such thing as providence. You know, providence is the idea that history is actually being guided by something above, outside of it, there is a caretaker to the direction of history. It's just one darn thing after another. There's no human rights. Human rights are rooted in the concept of God who has made us as divine imagers. Imagers of the divine, I should say, excuse me. Imagers of the divine. That's where individual rights are rooted. The moment you don't have that, then, well, okay, a state will grant you rights. <laughs> of course, if, if the state can grant you rights, they can also take them away. That's how totalitarianism starts. That's why totalitarianism is, is almost necessarily atheistic because it has to begin with the concept of there's no ultimate power above the state. We are in charge and individuals are kind of means to an end as opposed to image bearers of God. There's no priority of love. Is altruism a good thing that we ought? If you want it to be, it is. It's not universally that way. That again, that's also uprooted. Um, divine judgments, this concept, uh, you know, this is pointed out oftentimes in scripture. Biblical authors will say, hey, don't take revenge. Why? Because God is just right? God will mete out justice, whether it be now or in the time to come. And so actually our ability to say, I'm not going to seek revenge rests on the concept of because God's just, he will take care of everything. He will take care of it all. He will mete it all out. So Nietzsche's atheism, it cannot ground a morally meaningful life that we desire. 
It just has no grounding for it. And Nietzsche recognizes that. And again, I think we can use someone like that as we can kindly and in conversations ask questions of, well, um, I'm sure most of our atheist friends are quite moral people in many respects. But the question becomes is like, well, on, on what basis is that morality rooted or grounded on and asking those kinds of questions because I think what is seen eventually is inconsistency. Oh, I don't have a good reason for it. We're not saying someone who doesn't believe in God can't be good, right? Of course they can be good. Can they do good? Of course they can do good. They don't have any justification for the concept of good and evil. There's no philosophical grounding. It's, it's just floating out there. It's kind of rooted, uprooted rather. Okay, I want to do this. I'm going to look at the three big questions. I mentioned those earlier. Three big questions. You remember what they are? Religious ultimate, human problem, human solution. As we look at atheism, humanism, whatever it might be. The religious ultimate, and now some atheists might say, well, there is no religious ultimate. Okay, well then let me ask it another way. Um, what is eternal? What's behind everything? And typically, the answer that's given, the cosmos, matter. Matter itself is the only thing that is eternal. And it's recognizing that nothing comes from nothing. Typically, naturalists have to posit that matter rather than a transcendent personal mind is eternal. The universe is nothing more than a continuous chain of material or mechanical cause and effect. Uh, also hard to get out of, uh, of you called determinism if you're merely a naturalist. The idea that everything must happen that way, even in human behavior. <clears throat> How do we, do we have free will? Are we free agents? Well, if, if everything is just mechanically cause and effect, like I said, you get painted into the corner of determinism when it comes to the nature of the person pretty quickly. Um, the uh, astrophysicist, I don't know if you ever remember the astrophysicist Carl Sagan. He was, real, when, I w when I grew up in high school, like science classes, we just watched Carl Sagan all day long. Like that's just what we watched. And um, so like I knew him really well because ninth, 10th grade science class was every single day Carl. <clears throat> Carl Sagan had this famous statement. He said, the cosmos is all that is or ever was or ever will be. That was his sort of like tagline. The cosmos is all that is or ever was or ever will be. Of course, one problem with that is, is that a scientific statement? Can you test it? Can you reproduce it? That's a philosophical statement, right? That's not a scientific statement. That's a philosophical statement. Um, the American Humanist Society on their webpage reads this. Humanism is a philosophy, worldview, or life stance based on naturalism. The idea that it, everything boils down to the physical world, natural, nature. <clears throat> the conviction that the universe or nature is all that exists or is real. Because they don't really have a religious ultimate, guess what typically takes its place in naturalism? It's humanity. Typically, humanity becomes the religious ultimate, just in effect, with no transcendent personal being who gives, who gives meaning, um, humanity steps in to define what's true, uh, meaningful, what's purposeful, using no other standard than self, the human person. But see, the problem is that meaning has to come from a mind. Um, purpose has to be fixed by a purposer. So if there's no eternal purposeful mind, well, I guess we're on the top of the evolutionary heap and we set the rules. Uh, the famous philosopher, philosopher Protagoras said, man is the measure of all things. That's, that's sort of the, you know, that was his uh, bumper sticker for this naturalism idea. Man is the measure of all things and you determine that. So what's the human condition? Religious ultimate, well, it's matter, 
we're a part of matter, we're sort of at the top of it, so we typically get asserted into, into that. The human condition. Basically, we're a very uh, complex meat machine, but we are the result of accidental chemical and physical properties. There's no purpose behind, there's no purposer behind us being here. Um, Thomas Hobbes wrote, when I die, worms will devour my body. I commit my soul to the grave, perhaps. Bertrand Russell, a famous philosopher of this last century, said, humanity is, quote, a random collocation of atoms, mindless without ultimate destiny, and ultimately the collapse of the universe will bring all of our hopes crashing in disaster and pessimism. And you'd love for that guy to be your grandpa? Yeah, tell me a bedtime story. <clears throat> science is left, in this case, because that's the only tool, science is left incapable of evaluating humanity as upright or as just or even vicious and cruel. I mean, science cannot determine that. Science can only describe. It can't prescribe. It can describe what's happening. It can't say this is what ought to be that case. That's a philosophical view. Uh, Richard Dawkins is, is, is famously um, made comments like this in, in, in one of his books. He, he wrote this, and he, he's, he's quite accurate. He says, in a universe of blind physical force and genetic replication, some people are going to get hurt, other people are going to get lucky. You won't find any rhyme or reason, nor any justice. The universe we observe has precisely the properties we should expect. If there is at the bottom no design, no purpose, no evil, no good, nothing but blind, pitiless indifference. And then he, he ends by saying, by writing this DNA, which is he's saying that's just what you are, neither knows nor cares, DNA just is, and we dance to its music. He's trying to put a poetic spin on a very dark worldview philosophy. You are simply the result of your DNA. Um, what does that do to uh, moral um, guilt? Um, are, are you morally praiseworthy for an act? I don't think so. If you're just dancing to your DNA, are you morally guilty for some behavior you did? Well, if you're just dancing to your DNA, I can't see how you are. You don't, you, don't, um, you don't scold a pop machine when it fails to give you the pop after you put in 50 cents. You kick it. Right? Uh, are there implications here for how we treat humans who do evil things? It sure seems like it. And so the question is, is a person being consistent with that if they have jettisoned the concept of God? <clears throat> there are consequences of this view. I'm going to read for you some words by um, Viktor Frankl. Viktor Frankl, I don't know if you've ever uh, read his book, Man's Search for Meaning. It's absolutely fantastic. It's, it would be in probably my top 20 books that <clears throat> if uh, I could force people to read at gunpoint, I would force you to read that. Um, uh, Victor Frankl, he was a psychiatrist, uh, went to the uh, uh, couple different concentration camps. He was in Auschwitz, and um, he developed something called logotherapy, uh, this idea of you have to have meaning. He watched patients, and he realized I would see two people in the camp with me, and the minute one of them lost a purpose, this person's purpose might have been, I have my daughters on the outside and I'm, I'm waiting. The minute the other person lost meaning, he said, this person died within a very short period of time. And so he, he, and, and he wasn't a Christian. He became one later in life. But he, through that process, he realized we are hardwired for meaning as he's starting to see it. And he, he wrote this in his book, If we present man with a concept of man, meaning what's your nature? What do you like? Blind, uh, you know, collocation of atoms. If we present man with a concept of man which is not true, we may well corrupt him. When we present man as an, as an automaton of reflexes, 
That's the naturalist view. As a mind machine, as a bundle of instincts, as a pawn of drives and reactions, as a mere product of instinct, heredity, and environment, we feed the nihilism. Nihilism is, is the conclusion you come to if you say there's no meaning in life and everything's absolutely meaningless. We feed the nihilism to which man is, in any case, prone. And he said, I became, I became acquainted with the last stage of corruption in my second concentration camp, Auschwitz. The gas chambers of Auschwitz were the ultimate consequence of the theory that man is nothing but the byproduct of heredity and environment, or as the Nazis like to say, blood and soil. He says this, I am absolutely convinced. I'm absolutely convinced that the gas chambers of Auschwitz, Treblinka, and Majdanek were ultimately prepared not in some ministry of defense or other in Berlin, but rather at the desks and lecture halls of nihilistic scientists and philosophers. Isn't that fascinating? He says, that is the source of it. If you present man with a view of himself that he's only this, then why not camps? Why not that? And he didn't find a good answer to that. Um, it, it, I don't know if you've ever read um, Dallas Willard's The Divine Conspiracy. In, in his book, he, The Divine Conspiracy, he writes a little bit about this concept of if we present academically these ideas and we assume they never really see the real world. And he tells the story of um, Paul Borgo, he, uh, who wrote a book called The Disciple. And it's, it's a story, it's a fictional story. And in, in the story, this philosopher who's a naturalist, he gets summoned um, to the police for a criminal um, inquest concerning a brilliant student of this naturalistic professor who lived out the professor's uh, merely academic ideas and now awaited trial for murder. And it's this fascinating dialogue where he's saying like, your student did this and he was brilliant. And he, and he said, well, I, don't, I don't understand why he would have done that. And then you, you get spelled out in the book. It's like, well, because we told him this is what humanity is. So he was actually acting consistently with it rather than inconsistently. What's the human solution? Religious ultimate? It's we get put in that place. <clears throat> um, human condition? Human solution. Hu the solution is um, humanity is responsible for their own salvation. This is one of the great inconsistencies within naturalism is that humanity is at one and the same time without meaning, purpose, and hope, and yet is the only hope for the future of humanity. Um, let, me, let me read for you. This is, a, this is the Humanist Manifesto. I don't know how many of you have ever read, read it sometime. It's very, it actually, this is the first and second Humanist Manifesto, very short. In 1933, there were like 34 humanist, secularist um, thinkers, academics who, who got together and they said, we need to write a manifesto for what we mean by being a secular humanist. And, and so um, in 1933, these uh, various different thinkers said, the time has come for widespread recognition um, of the radical changes that, you know, we've done away with religion is what they said. Therefore, here's sort of our, you know, our new way of doing it. And the very first uh, statement on there is that um, religious humanists regard the universe as self-existent and not created. And then also writes, um, man is at last, this is, this is interesting, man is at last becoming aware. He alone is responsible for the realization of the world of his dreams. And he has within himself the power for its achievement. He must set intelligence and will to the task. Okay? We can do this. 1933. What happened about a decade later? Yeah. World War II, Nazism. So 40 years later, uh, new guys get back together. Mani Humanist Manifesto II. And they're right there. 
It has been 40 years since the Humanist Manifesto appeared. Events since then uh, make that earlier statement seem a little too optimistic. <laughs> Nazism has shown the depths of brutality to which humanity is capable. While there is much that we do, uh, do not know, humans are responsible for what we can become. No deity will save us. We must save ourselves. And they, they, it's like, yeah, that was a little optimistic. This time we can do it, right? If we just really set our minds to it, we are the solution. So, well, of course we are because we're the religious ultimate. I mean, that's, that's the answer to that particular one. Um, Humanist Manifest also, uh, we get this statement made in there. Um, humanism can provide the purpose and inspiration that so many seek. It can give personal meaning and significance to human life. <clears throat> the problem is, is that that's completely subjective. It's left up to the individual. So then I have to say, in fact, you know, you... you watch these like uh, true crime shows. I don't know if you ever watched those. And you know, there's some mass murderer. And oftentimes when they're interviewed, they say like, well, it made me happy. I was doing what fulfilled me. And of course, that's the philosophy though that humans themselves do what fulfills you. And there is no absolute moral standard to guide that. So what does that lead to? What's interesting to me is um, about, uh, oh gosh, I'm trying to think. It was after the Twin Towers. I know that's when, I, yeah, I don't know if you know the name Sam Harris. He's a famous uh, atheistic writer. He said it was that event that caused him to first start writing about, this is why I think religion is so evil. And then over the next 20 years, this, this movement came about called the New Atheism, if you've heard of that before. The New Atheism, it was... Um, <clears throat> there's nothing new. I mean, it's the same atheism, but it was sort of this new thrust of saying, yes, we want to create strong atheists. We want to get rid of religion. Religion is the problem. It's, and there were like <clears throat> conferences and events where these atheists, uh, you know, would come together and, and have this. And it was, you know, had quite a bit of steam for a good decade or so. But what's really interesting that that particular group has, has fractioned and it's sort of lost its steam. The new atheism is, is kind of petering out. Um, <clears throat> there's one book recommendation that I uh, made for you, the, um, the last one, The Surprising Rebirth of Belief in God, Why the New Atheist Grew Old and Secular Thinkers Are Considering Christianity Again. Justin Brierley <clears throat> writes this book, and he, he makes an interesting comment. He says, I think... I think we're seeing the, the end of this strong wave of atheism that, that was the 20th century. It, and, you know, just like waves go out, he says, and they come back in. Uh, he said, I think we're seeing the death of it. And he said that he kind of uses this as an example. Um, I don't know if you know who Peter Boghossian is. Peter Boghossian, um, let's see, he's got a book. Uh, he's a philosopher, brilliant guy. In 2013, he wrote a book, A Manual for Creating Atheists. Okay, so it kind of lets you know Peter Pagoshin, right? Brilliant guy. <clears throat> What's, um, Ju Justin Brierley tells the story. He, he said, um, I've had Peter Pagoshin before come and do debates with Christian philosophers. And he said, Peter Pagoshin was always in for it, loved it, and all that sort of thing. He said, I reached out to him this last year. And I said, hey, we're doing another event. We'd like you to come and do a debate. And he goes not really interested in talking about that much more. And actually I'm finding that I'm working with a lot of Christians on different things. And so, yeah, no, thank you. <clears throat> and what, what he said the cause was, was this, the sort of cultural divide that's happening now is sort of causing people to sort of step on one side or the other of this cultural divide. And there's a lot of Christians there and there's a lot of atheists there as well. I, I met one. Um, uh, James Lindsay is uh, a philosopher. I went to a conference 
And um, the very first book, you look him up on Amazon, very first book he wrote is like, um, here's, how to, here's how to destroy theism. Here's how to destroy Christianity. And what he said to me is, and he's, he's still an agnostic. He said, I regret writing that book. I said, why is that? He said, well, because I love Western civilization. And I believe that the only thing holding Western civilization is the conservative evangelical church. He said, so now I am the greatest proponent of a conservative evangelical church on the planet because I love Western civilization. He realized, and he's realizing, I pray for him every single week that he would become a believer. He, he's seeing the conclusion of his own ideas of what they lead to. He doesn't like it. He's, he's, he's not ready yet. I pray that he is. <laughs> Maybe you'll join me in that prayer because he's a brilliant guy, but he sees the consequences of these particular ideas. And, you know, one of the things that, ever, that I, I guess I put out there as a, oftentimes atheists don't like this idea of, well, coming to Christ is, it's this act of, Utter submission. Yes, there is that, absolutely. That's a component. But one of the things that I've, I, and I've, I've brought this up a few different times, you know, one of the, you guys might know the story of um, Genesis chapter 32. Jacob wrestles with this man all night long, and he says, you know, I, uh, I won't let go of you. We find out the man is, uh, it's God, come in human form. It's a theophany, an appearance of God, but in the form of a man. And he says, I, you know, I'm contending with you. He says, let me go. No, not until you bless me. And he says, okay, what's your name? And he says, well, it's Jacob. Jacob means deceiver, heel grabber. And that's been his whole life. And he goes, well, not anymore. Now your name is Israel, which means contends with God, wrestles with God. And so he he blesses him. He touches his hip. His hip goes out of place. <clears throat> Man leaves. Jacob walks back limping, we're told. But what's so fascinating is that we have a faith which God is saying, I don't want mere submission. You can contend with me in relationship. You can contend with me. And I think that's an offer to the atheist. I think that's a valid offer to say, this is a God who allows you to contend with him. You've got problems with things. You, you have objections to how he's running things. So did Job. So did a lot of all of these people. We follow a God who allows us to contend with him. I think that's a fantastic offer, don't you? <laughs> I think that's a beautiful sell. So there are so many different conversations that you can have. And typically people are atheists I find not because of some philosophical argument, usually there's something in their life, oftentimes a hurt in the past or some, some questions that they just never quite got answered at church. And so as you dialogue with them, be that curious question asker. Talk to me a little bit about when you first started thinking these ideas. Who are some of the biggest thinkers that have been influential to you? What are the aspects of this that, that, that fulfill you? How do you find your meaning. And you're asking around those questions of origin, meaning, morality, destiny. You're thinking about those buckets. You're asking the, you're trying to get at what, what do they think the human problem is? What do they think the human solution is? Is there one? Do they have hope? And, be, and we have the ultimate hope of Christ to offer them. We're going to transition into a time of communion. Here's what I'd like to do. Um, during the next 60 seconds, hopefully you grab the elements. I'm going to ask you to do this. In, your own, in the quietness of your own mind, we'll have just some light music playing. I want you to take 60 seconds. I'll, I'll have my eye on the clock. And I want you to prepare your heart. I want you to come before your God and listen. Be grateful. Pray. And then we'll take communion together.
we take communion, the bread symbolizing Christ's body, which was broken for us. Father, we thank you for the gift of your son, his broken body, his sacrifice. Let's take the bread. The cup is a symbol of his blood shed for us on the cross. Father, thank you for the sacrifice of Jesus. The cup. Let me read for you as a benediction as we go out. Philippians chapter 2, verse 4. Paul writes, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, this is what every we all need to be aware of, every knee should bow. In the unseen realm, <laughs> in the heaven, on earth, and under the earth. And every tongue confess Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. That's our claim, isn't it? We have a good God. He loves you so much, and I'm so glad you're here, and I love you. So thank you for being here. You guys, let me just pray for you as you go out. God, be with us this week. Thank you for what you're doing in this community. Thank you for stretching our minds. Would you create opportunities, space for us to have conversations that matter with people who are at various points, who have various different worldviews. Give us a love for those people. May our hearts break for them. Show us the best way that we can extend the opportunity to know the Most High God. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. You guys have a great rest of your week. I'll see you next week for Sentence 2. <laughs>